Hey Kingdom Roots friends, if you're like me, one of the things I love most about what Scott regularly shares on the podcast is that he is really good at boiling down complex issues and theories into accessible and practical ideas. One of the ways he is best at this is when he equips pastors and teachers to help their churches to read the Bible. Truthfully, there is no greater discipline than reading your Bible to help your community to become more like Jesus. That's why I would love to have you join Scott and I on Tuesday, October 24th from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Central Standard Time for our webinar on how to teach the church to read the Bible. If you'd like to learn more or would like to go ahead and sign up, just click the link that I've included in the show notes below. Being a part of this live is a really cool experience in the webinar format, but if you can't make it at from 10 to 11 or are listening to this podcast after October 24th, still go online and click the link that I include, uh, register, and we'll send you a link with a video of the replay. I really hope that you don't miss this opportunity to help the kingdom to take root in your own context through learning more about teaching your church to read their Bible. Now we're going to jump into the episode for today. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. Right, Scott, this has been a pretty fun journey, hasn't it? I, I almost can't believe that we're already on our last parable, but I think we've saved a good one for our last one and excited to get to chat with our fellow MANT student that we have with us today talking about this parable. So you want to kind of get us going on our last conversation here with the parables? Yes, we have with us a pastor from Grand Rapids, Michael Beefus, who is... Um, is one of our students in the program of Master of Arts in New Testament. And uh, he has uh, worked on the parable of the ten virgins. And as um, some of our listeners will know, uh, one of the projects, one of the focuses in our program is learning to write and learning to write accessible prose so that lay people can read what we're talking about. Uh, There is a tendency for academics to write for one another, and all it takes is a couple sentences, and a a typical layperson looks at us and says, what in the world is going on here? Because academics tend to make assumptions uh, that everybody knows what they know. It's not a very good form of communication. So we're working on that feature of in our program in education uh, and focusing on writing. And one of the projects that we're doing is writing a a book together, um, and that's what we're doing with our master's degree, on parables, and we're calling it Imagine a World Like This. So Michael Beefus um, has worked on this parable of the ten virgins, and I'm going to ask him, uh, as we begin this session, what he thinks the big idea of this parable is. And how he, in a sense, he can talk about, uh, Michael, you can talk about how you uh, discovered this or what the process was for your discovery and your conviction of how this parable is constructed and what it means. 
So I'm going to turn it over to Michael to talk about the big idea of this parable and how it relates to the theme of imagining a world like this. So, Michael, great to have you with us today. Thanks for interrupting your schedule for us, and um, over to you. Thanks, Scott, and thanks, Chaz. It's good to be here. Well, you know, when I first got assigned this parable, I, I, I have to admit I was a little disappointed because I don't think uh, the parable of the Ten Virgins makes anybody's you know top ten lists. Uh, at least it didn't mine. I don't know that it's one of... It's yeah. not one of Jesus' best loved parables, and I'd never taught on it before. Um, you are totally I, honest. I think it scares people. <laughs> so I yeah. thought, you know, I don't know if that's a compliment that Scott thinks I'm up to this, or, you know, he gave me the leftovers or what, but it's been really interesting. Um, I've not taught on this. I've stayed on, you know, things like the Good Samaritan, um, and as I as I dug into the the literature, there's there's not a lot written about this. Um, um, one of the primary texts we had, Klein Snodgrass, I think he he said that this had only been uh, only once has there been a com- an entire monograph devoted to this text, which not surprising, but um, I think it's back in like the 17th century. Uh, he said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, you know, not a not, not maybe a popular one in our era, for sure. Um, and I think the I, I think maybe the big idea may suggest why that is. Um, it um, it it seems to me that the, the big idea here is that there are people who fully expect to be welcomed into um, the the wedding feast, whatever, whatever, whatever that represents. There's there are people that fully expect to be welcomed in who, and some of them will be, and some of them won't. And despite their confidence, or maybe because of their confidence, uh, there's people that would expect to be there that are unprepared. Uh, that seems to me to be at the heart of it. And, you know, it's, it's, that's a scary idea. Um, maybe especially for, for people raised um, in an area like I have, West Michigan, where you know, we've been taught since, um, you know, since Sunday school that uh, once you pray the prayer, you're in, um, you can be assured, uh, you're going to persevere as a saint. Uh, there's no questioning that. And this this parable, along with, you know, some of the rest of the Olivet Discourse, just seems to poke some holes in, in that nice and tidy um, theology that I was raised with. Well, I, I think you've uh, you've nailed it here. So let me say this. Let, uh, tell me if you agree with me. Jesus asks us to imagine a world in which the judgment of God will be surprising. Something like that? Yeah, I, I, that's a good way to put it. And uh, we are to imagine a world in which people who today are quite confident of their future location in the kingdom of God, but that confidence is misplaced, something like that? That seems to be the the frightening reality that Jesus is inviting us to. Um, Um, Okay, now now let me, uh, Mike, I want to tell you, uh, when I was in college and I was in Grand Rapids, uh, I went to Cornerstone University. It wasn't called that then, but... um, I had some great Bible teachers there, and I'm very grateful for what I learned at Cornerstone. Um, I was, at that time, uh, reading deeply in Puritans. 
and I was reading, so, you know, it's Puritan theology can't simply be equated with Calvinism because it's a special kind of Calvinism. Uh, and most of uh, what I read uh, was the English and American early colonial type stuff. I was reading English people like John Owen and Thomas Brooks. And uh, oddly enough, with the, with the emphasis among Puritans on perseverance and with the emphasis on introspection, which is so characteristic of Puritanism, mm -hmm. or it was characteristic, this sort of parable was used quite often to awaken or to attempt to awaken in the minds and hearts and souls of those who were listening to Puritan preachers that they may think they're in the kingdom of God, but they're not. And this sort of introspectiveness and introspection and self-consciousness and self-awareness, but also tied deeply into a theme of self-deception that humans have a capacity uh, to do, uh, this parable uh, came up quite often when I was uh, in my college years. So when when Klein Snodgrass says this isn't a popular parable, it, it is true, but it has been popular in certain circles, and especially, I think, in Puritan circles. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think you're right. Uh, Mike, when you say that uh, this is not a popular parable, and it's not popular in part, if I'm, you know, you can add anything you want to add here. It's not popular in part because we have a, a very soft view of God, and we have a very um, unconditional love of God, and it is developed into a sense where many people think they're entitled to God. They think they're entitled to the kingdom of God. And this idea of perseverance or having uh, the, the characteristics and virtues of someone who's genuinely born again and obedient, etc., however you define these things, um, frightens people, but it not only frightens them, they think it's unworthy of Christianity. So with that, uh, I wonder what you would say to uh, to this uh, long little uh, addition I made here. To <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it is interesting because you're right. Um, in it, it, there's there's sort of both a a maybe a lack written of, of things written about it, but um, a fascination with this idea um, that I can certainly relate to with. Um, both in, you know, in my growing up years, first in kind of the fundamentalist church and then a, an evangelical charismatic tradition, you know, a constant worrying that I wasn't in. Um, yes, yes. But it was it was interesting because um, the, it, it seemed like the solution to that sort of uh, you know, anxiety was uh, just redoubling our efforts to, you know, prove the case that we are in. Um, yes, and yes. the assurance message. Yeah. Uh, and it almost, I mean, it seems like after a while, like, you know, it's, it thinks the lady doth the test too much. I mean, we're just yeah. over and over and over. And it, it seems to reveal like we, that we, we, we're not all that confident or assured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems, it, uh, Michael, this is, you know, as you as a pastor and you're in your personal life, and and 
when I was a college student, I suffered uh, at times from a lack of assurance. And uh, I probably was reading the wrong people to find assurance because I was reading the Puritans. But maybe they were the ones that I needed at the time. And I, I uh, deeply appreciated and learned deeply from their the strength of their perceptions of God and God's grace and our need to depend upon God. But it seems to me that Jesus just has this capacity to disturb the comforted. Mm. Uh, he also knows when to comfort the disturbed. And this is a standard line I heard in a sermon, I think, when I was a kid. Uh, and it stuck with me. But this, uh, this is the sort of parable that Jesus tells, is that when we think we're in, we need to hear from him that uh, don't get too confident, don't get too comfortable, uh, not because uh, he doesn't love us and God's grace is not sufficient, or, or, and not because Jesus wants to torture us, but because human beings have the capacity to deceive themselves and to slide into ideas that uh, we're good enough and that our salvation is based on what we do and what we accomplish. But here Jesus is just piercing the conscience of some of his listeners with a parable that probably almost certainly uh, is moving in the direction of the self-assured Pharisee types, zealot types in his community who who are not at all like the humble, poor Galilean peasants, like his mother and his brothers and sisters, who, who do not have that kind of confidence, do not have that kind of uh, self-assuredness mm. that they see in these leaders. So I would say Jesus wants us to imagine a world in which, our, in which the self-assured religious experts need to be put on the spot. Mm -hmm. Something like that. What what do you think? Yeah, that's that's and you know that's the question I suppose with just uh, the pastoral application um uh that which is really what's most interesting to me about this. I I um I remember um back years ago I was working with teenagers and and I um yeah, I was kind of working through uh, deconstructing some of these ideas I'd grown up with and, and wrestling with the, the, uh, these challenging ideas that, you know, the sheep and the goats, and that was probably the one at the time. And I remember just pointing out to some of my high school students, um, you know, all these holes that Jesus pokes in, in our, you know, our simple, you know, salvation gospel plans and I, I had some students that were just really unnerved and uh, by that, and in a not very helpful way. Uh, they weren't where I was. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they, they, they were much earlier on in the journey, and they probably needed to be comforted and and yeah. not uh, troubled. Um, so I think I think that's uh, yeah, audience and sort of the pastoral theology side of this is probably um, yeah, that's that's. That's at the heart of you know, coming to understand what this is here for. Uh, you know, to me, uh, I think one of the things that's it's clear here is that there are times when we need to hear the Puritan voice. Mm -hmm. And there are times when we need to hear Philip Yancey or Brennan Manning. Mm -hmm. 
And Jesus knew and discerned which group needed to hear what. And, and what you just said there pastorally is exactly the point. There were probably some people in their journey that did not need to hear a parable that scared the daylights out of them. And they, did, they didn't need to read the warning passages in Hebrews, although they may have stumbled into them in a sermon or, or you know, so, sometime. Uh, and so we, we can't shelter people and, and find their category they need and keep everything in that category. But um, I do think that there, this, this has a pastoral context, this parable. And, and one of the things we're doing in the class is, is working on historical background and as you were studying this parable, uh, I'm, I'm sure you came across some things, some themes, some ideas from from the historical background. And I wonder if you could uh, share some of those, what you saw as interesting, what Klein Snadgrass perhaps pointed you to, uh, just anything uh, that that kind of shows how this parable worked in its world in anything that, that yeah you know and, and if i can i there's one other thing i want to say just on the pastoral side um after i really started into this project and even the first draft with the writing um i i ran into um uh, a sermon by fleming rutledge that somebody had uh you know, reblogged and, and, um, you know, she's an Episcopal priest and, uh, she had just written on this in the wake of, um, the Charleston massacre and, um, you know, pointed out that, um, it's, you know, whereas a lot of progressive Christians have, uh, have just maybe rejected outright the idea of a judgment, um, and, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe some of us in less progressive quarters have at least decided it doesn't apply to us um, and we don't have any cause for worry. She yep. just pointed out from the side of people, the oppressed, um, and I think she was speaking maybe in Charleston at the, the time, it, 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 from the perspective of the oppressed, the awaiting of judgment reads completely differently. Um, yes, the that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and she even then, you know, one of the one and we can get to the interpretive questions historically that, you know, one of the big questions has always been, of course, you know, what is this oil? Um, does the oil represent anything significant uh, or anything specific? And, um, you know, she she didn't um, come to the conclusion that there was there was a, a really clear specific, but there's something about um there's something about uh, suffering through the night um, and in the waiting and the longing for uh, the everything to be made right and the judgment to come. There's something in that that produces a readiness um, that uh, it's hard to hard to uh, even experience in the, <clears throat> the majority world or the the uh, on the side of the oppressor. Uh, so that really that I, I realized I'd never read this passage that way uh, from somebody who was hoping um, for uh, things to be made right. Um, I think specifically she makes a men mention of the forgiveness and the incredible forgiveness process that happened in Charleston and the people and even in the days after who lost loved ones saying, you know, we are we're choosing forgiveness. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, made a big deal of the the idea that that uh, the bridegroom was saying, come and be with me. 
Um, so it's just a completely different uh, framework for, you know, the questions she was bringing to the text. And um, so I think I'm going to need to do another another draft here on this just in light of that. Uh, you know, I I've often said that I mean, I, I grew up uh, listening and uh, I've I've lived in evangelicalism long enough to to hear the idea that came through Reinhold Niebuhr that many mainliners, many liberals, whatever you want to call them, don't believe in judgment. My experience has been that uh, progressives today, progressive Christians, are are strong on their sense of judgment. They are not weak. They don't have, in, in some ways, the same sense of, let's say, a final judgment on who gets in and who gets out. But progressives long like Jesus for the kingdom of God to come, and they they may not emphasize this th- quite this way, but they look for the day when injustice will be eradicated. And in that sense, they're longing for judgment the way many of the poor and way many of the oppressed and the way Mary uh, and John the Baptist and uh, Simeon and Anna were longing for judgment to come because they knew it would be uh, the end of the oppressors. So I've become convinced that uh, both uh, sides of the spectrum, both ends of the spectrum in Christianity, emphasize judgment. Mm-hmm. It's not that one has judgment and the other one doesn't, but but both are emphasizing judgment, one at a very personal salvation level and another one at a larger cosmic uh, justice level. And, and I believe that Jesus probably sides here with the progressive side on this, but more importantly, we need both of these themes. We mm-hmm. need this theme of longing for judgment. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you bring this up about Fleming, that she sees people who are oppressed they're they're going to be ready. They're ready for judgment to come. So this can't not be restricted exclusively to those who have developed the spiritual virtue of perseverance. Uh, this is also about people longing for God's rectitude or God making things right coming into existence. I wonder if you saw anything about virgins or lamps mm-hmm. or marriages, anything like that that you think uh, helped enlighten the meaning of the parable. Well, um, you know, there, there has been a long interpretive tradition um, of just all sorts of things. And I, I, I'm sure all parables are, are this way um, from, you know, incredible, incredibly fanciful sort of interpretations that you see in Augustine. Um, and then what I noticed is, you know, the, those, those pro- proliferated in the pre-modern era and then um, in the, the modern critical era, um, they, the questions that arose were um, whether this was, uh, the suggestion arose that there, this wasn't allegorical at all. In fact, it probably couldn't be attributed to Jesus. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, this was just a way of explaining why, you know, he didn't come back as quickly as uh, the early church imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, you know, and just looking through all of what's been said, 
about um, you know the oil and the, the, the specifics and how deep the like how deeply we can read allegory into some of the specifics. Um, I, I honestly, honestly, I first really attached to something I saw um, Brad Jerzak had blogged on this and and really dug deeply into what the oil could represent. And he had a really a very interesting take on it that at, at first was was convincing. He suggested that um, because of the, the etymological similarities of oil and uh, mercy um, in in the original language, um, that there's we ought to associate this with mercy, um, you know, similar to maybe what we might do with the sheep and the goats um, parable that follows. Um, and and I, I originally was was really attracted to that possibility. I thought that will preach. Um, yeah, it will. <laughs> but as I dug deeper, there's the the connections there are. It, it's pretty hard to make. I think I found one Orthodox um, uh, theologian who, you know, was saying something about that. Um, but uh, there's really. Um, it's, it, it did not look to me like this idea really goes back further than Jerzak's own, own thinking. Well, uh, you know, uh, it, it would be a pun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be more of a pun than anything else. And, uh, the parable seems to be too stiff and too serious, uh, and too focused mm-hmm. on oil itself rather than a connotation of a pun. Uh, so, uh, I wondered, have you landed on the meaning of uh, what do you think the oil is in this parable? Because, look, uh, people who read this parable, ordinary people read this parable and they go, what in the world is this oil? Do I have this oil? Yeah, that's that's what people ask. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think what I've landed on is that um, it, it it's not there's not uh, any one suggestion that. Um, seems to carry the weight, um, here, uh, there's, there have been all, I mean, I, I, the, the suggestions are, are pretty fascinating, you know, the Holy Spirit in us, the, um, more conservatives want to see this as, you know, the proper understanding of maybe fundamentalist theology is what, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, what everybody wants to see the oil, uh, is something their group possesses. And, <laughs> excellent, excellent observation. That's uh, right. No one, so no one wants to imagine that the other, the other party has the oil, and we're we're lacking. So, given that, um, uh, it, it would seem to me that the safest uh, reading of this is to say that oil could be everything and anything <laughs> that uh, Jesus taught or said or did, um, like just a general readiness, uh, having followed after him and, uh, taken his teaching to heart. Um, the, the point, uh, and I, I think I'm with Snodgrass on this. Uh, it's the overarching narrative that is the point of this. And the the point, the point of the narrative is, is awareness and readiness, um, and sobriety in estimating our own readiness. Um, and, and the, the details, whether it's, you know, the number 10, Snodgrass would say that doesn't, that means nothing. Um, the, the, the sleep does not imply some lack of vigilance or, you know, sleep and rising is not about death and resurrection. Um, the middle of the night, 
you know, it doesn't mean that Jesus return must surely be in the middle of the night sometime. And um, all, all of these different things that have been proposed, um, he comes back to just the central overarching theme. And for me, that's convincing um, that we, if we can't uh, make a really solid case on what the oil uh, means it would be dangerous to assume we know what it means, um, and see that's that's where I've landed on the text that yeah. that, that we don't want to we don't want to rely on speculation on something as sober as this. And I like the way you put it that you know this is sober enough that to think Jesus was just making puns, um, <laughs> which doesn't seem to fit the context. Yeah, you know, uh, Klein Snodgrass is. Uh, stories with intent a great book uh, uh, a better than a great book uh and i've i've told that he now has a second edition coming out so uh, i'm gonna have to find another i'm gonna have to find some more money and buy it but um he is excellent at deflating silly ideas he mm -hmm. really says okay nice idea no Nice idea here. No, this is a crazy idea. We can let's get back to what this what's really going on here. So I one of the things that I think is is really important, and I think Michael that you have all but said this. There's nothing tricky about this oil. It, this is not Gnosticism. This isn't a secret knowledge. This is not some secret thing that only the insiders know about. And therefore, if you don't get into my inner circle, you'll never know what the oil is. This has got to be evident and plain and simple as the truth of being connected to Jesus, that those who knew Jesus, those who would listen to him teach, even those who were opposed to Jesus heard this parable. And by and large, they went, whoa, I get what he's getting at here. So, well, and that, that so, raises the other question, uh, the interpretive question, Scott, that seems to be at the forefront in everything I read, which is, what does this um, this reckoning or judgment, what does it point to? Um, that that was the other one. That, and it seems to me that now, it, today, there, there is still uh, pretty active debate about that, um, that it would have been sobering then, but... Um, um, it, 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 to Jesus' original audience in that moment, um, the, the question seems to be, was he just pointing to the judgment he was bringing in that day to Israel? Um, or, you know, then quite early on in the early church, this seems to have been interpreted to, uh, to uh, refer to the second coming. Yeah and, yeah. and from what I see, you know, N.T. Wright and others um, you know, right, especially just would say the, this entire, you know, all of that discourse is, is all about the, the, the first century and, and, uh, judgment on Israel, um, the destruction of Jerusalem, that yeah. sort of, you know, this is, this is so important and it's, uh, it's unfortunate that the history of interpretation has virtually nullified or silenced the historical realities of what this text was on about. But clearly, uh, Jesus did not dissociate the judgment of God for eternity from the physical realities of the land of Israel, the temple, the leaders in Israel, the Pharisees. So in other words, Jesus tied together the destruction of Jerusalem with the final judgment. 
So it was a historical reality of judgment as much as it was an eternal reality. What we've done today is we've so dissociated it from a historical judgment, um, an earthly judgment, a national judgment, uh, a judgment on corrupted leadership in the spiritual realm of the temple and its organization of worship, that uh, we don't we don't even hear these themes. But Tom Wright is exactly right, and Klein will uh, will echo this in lesser forms or in a lesser to a lesser degree. But as you read Matthew 25 and the parable of the virgins, if you haven't read Matthew 24, you can turn it into some kind of spiritual uh, judgment in heaven. But when you read Matthew 23 through 25 together, you go, whoa, this is about, this is a warning about the leaders in Israel being judged. They're very confident that they're the ones who are going to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm not sure they've got the oil that's needed. And that's where the oil, uh, you're right, the oil has sort of a generalized sense. But uh, when you listen to Jesus, this is about listening to him, the truth of the gospel that he preaches, the kingdom of God found in him. It's about relationship to him. It's about obedience and discipleship and loving God and loving others, not just loving God and not loving others. So all that, I think, gets wrapped into this, and 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 you're right in, in connecting this uh, to judgment. So, well, I, I think we've come to the end of our time here, but Michael, you might have some closing thoughts or something you want to add. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd, uh, we haven't talked about this until now, so I, I'm glad to hear you say it. I, I did notice um, in your book, New Vision for Israel, that you, um, you, the one phrase that caught my attention was that we should see the, the destruction of Jerusalem unfolding, and, and as, as the inauguration of final judgment. And that sounds yeah. like what you're saying now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a both and. Yeah. Um, that's that's helpful because I I was stuck for quite a while on this either or, mm-hmm. um, and, and it is it is tempting to say well this has got to be about one or the other, because we're a little afraid aren't we that if it's only about a historical judgment it doesn't seem to have any value anymore, but we we can read the prophets warning of judgment of of Assyrian captivity of Babylonian captivity and see in that judgment the ultimate judgment of God. And that's what I think we're to see in Jesus's words. His words are our warning to the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem and throughout the land. And at the same time, uh, they touch on the great final judgment that God will render a verdict on all human beings and all injustices in the world. And we will um, be subject to that judgment. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's so. I guess we'd have to say that the what Jesus is saying isn't so different than Judaism. Um, God hasn't changed His game plan here, and His criteria are not as changed, at least as I grew up thinking. Yeah, that's right. I would agree. I mean, this is um, you know I'll, I'll close with this idea: is that this parable wants us to imagine a world in which God will judge, in which historical realities will become manifest for how they correspond to 
or don't correspond to the will of God for this world and for his people, for all people, and that we should not take too great a confidence in our status, that we should turn again to what Jesus wants of us, and that we are to remain faithful to him so that we will be ready when that judgment comes. So we are to imagine a world in which finally God is going to make things right, and those who are on God's team will win, something like that. Yeah, mm, That's good. Yeah. Well, thanks, Scott, and thank you, Mike, for, for joining us today. Appreciate all you added to the conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Uh, good time, Michael. Thank uh, you. Thanks, thanks for, for taking the time. Yep. And thank right. you, our listeners, for joining us uh, again for another episode. Um, wanted to let you know, man, if you really in- enjoyed what you know we have to say, and you kind of have that desire to be able to help your church to be able to read the Bible and to begin to to make connections and and put things together um, in such a way that they really deepen and grow their own spiritual journey and walk. Scott and I are going to be doing a webinar on Tuesday, October twenty fourth, from. 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, and we'd love to have you join us. I mentioned it already, but um, we'll have the link to register for that in the show notes, and we'd love to have you join us live and um, interact with any questions or, or anything that you'd like might like to participate in with us on that. So um, make sure you check that out. But as always, we're appreciative of you and look forward to, to join you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.